Um, We are into the final part of Gideon's story today. We're going to read all of chapter 8. And here is what it says. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is it that you have done to us, not to call us when we went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grapes, the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please, give, me, give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba, Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and, and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel, and spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of, the, of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbaha, and attacked the army, and the, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and, th- and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and the briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled a son of a king. And he said to them, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And he, un- and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, oh, sorry, and they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. The weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. 
and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereath their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And so ends the cycle of Gideon. So, in, um, just before the American Revolution, uh, July 2nd, 1789, sorry, this is the French Revolution, just before the French Revolution, um, a guy named John Wesley, he's a Methodist preacher, you may know the name, he preached a sermon in Dublin, England, in Dublin, Ireland, sorry, sheesh, don't let the Irish hear me say that, Dublin. So in Dublin, and he opens his sermon with this question. Why has Christianity done so little good in the world? Is it not the balm, the outward means which the great physician has given to men to restore their spiritual health? Why then is it not restored? So, it's a fair question. See, Wesley had, we we could argue that of course, right? Christianity's done a lot of good for for the world, we know that. But Wesley's point was this, in his experience, he found he, he preached to so many in the wilderness, he preached to people in, in farm towns and cities, everywhere. And he found there was a trend, and he called it an inconsistency in Christianity. That's not heretical, he just saw there was a, a paradox. And he saw this, the more he preached, and the more people began to believe the gospel, the more their lives began to change. And he saw people who were poor and living in poverty and who were struggling with addictions. He saw them slowly getting healed and um, those who were uh, impoverished were gaining a greater sense of their obligation and their work and a sense of frugality and industriousness. And so he said people in general, even if they don't get materially better off when they become Christian, they find they grow in, in things like patience and hope and their relationships get better. They get, they get happier, they're more contented. And he said, here's the problem, though. Christianity improves our situation, but as our our situation improves, it leads us to pride because we start to think we're the ones responsible for our improved situation. And then Christianity's a mess. And because of that, because we always stumble over the success God gives us, we end up not making the world better because we end up kneecapping our own abilities by thinking it's us who did it all along. At one point, he even, it's not in this sermon, but Wesley sends a letter out to his congregation, uh, one of the congregations, and he says, um, you know, when I met you guys, you were poor. Now you have money. Why don't you go out and help your friends? Is it because it's raining and you don't want to spoil your silk coat? And he's just a, if you know John Wesley, he's not always pleasant. He was a hard, he, he took sin very seriously. And so it's a fair question. And this passage in the book of Judges shows us this paradox that Wesley points out that as Israel starts to do well, and Gideon as well, as God gives success and peace and prosperity to Israel, they fall back into sin because they can't seem to get it right. So success to them 
because they're riddled with sin, ends up becoming a snare to them. <clears throat> and so, in this passage, we're actually going to see a lot. It's a great profile and case study about sin. And it's going to show us four things today, so I'm going to have to move quick. It shows us that sin hides, it drives, it consumes, but ultimately, thanks to God, it's killed. Okay, and we're going to see that here. We're going to see why it is that Gideon, as he gains success in his story and he starts to win and God is doing things for him, it all leads to this end. And, and a lot of commentators say, boy, you know what? If only Gideon had died at the end of chapter 7, then maybe we'd remember him as somebody who needed encouragement, but somebody who was at least a good, a good, good judge. But he really doesn't end well here. So let's move into the first point, hide. And let's try to go through the story as it comes to us. It's a long chapter and lots of interesting stories. So the first two scenes in this chapter are interactions between Gideon and Ephraim, a short one for the first three verses, and then his interaction with these two cities. And they're back to back. And the reason they're back to back is because they're meant to be contrasted, because you have Gideon behaving very differently in each one. And so let's look at the first one. You remember from last week, after the, the Midianites are routed in the battle, they head south, and they're looking to get out. And as they go south, Gideon calls Ephraim and says, hey, come and join the fight, because they're a tribe in the south, and cut off the escape route. So they do that. And they capture two of the Midianite princes and force the remainder of the army to go over the Jordan and towards Midianite land in the east. And then, after this is done, when Gideon finally meets up with Ephraim, they have this interaction at the start of chapter 8. And Ephraim, there's two things happening. I think two reasons this is told to us, this, this scene. Because the scene doesn't show up again, Gideon doesn't mention Ephraim again, never meets them again. But there's two things happening. One, we're being introduced to this tribe that is going to resurface in chapter 12. And Ephraim, as they are here, will be the same in chapter 12, but they're going to meet a very different judge then. They come and they're being introduced as a tribe that is powerful, but a tribe that is self-interested and really thinks that, hey, we should be leading this. Why didn't you call us to this battle earlier? If you're going to have this big fight, why aren't we part of it? So they feel left out. And Gideon, to his credit, brilliantly deals with it, like very diplomatic. So Gideon responds in a way we haven't yet seen. And he says this wonderful line, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? So what he's saying is, okay, hold on, guys. Yes, our tribe, Abiezer, we took the harvest. We took the big, we did the big fighting. However, notice that your little gleanings led to you having these two princes, the trophies. So although we took the harvest, your gleanings are far more impressive than ours. And this seems to satisfy the Ephraimites. They're like, okay, yeah, make a good point. Which is okay. So Gideon is a shrewd diplomat here. He does a great job of avoiding what could have become an early battle and a civil war and all that. So we have this diplomatic Gideon. And the very next scene, he encounters another group of Israelites, because Sukkoth is a, a town that was given to Gad by Moses in Genesis. And Penuel, if you remember, is a place where Jacob wrestles with God in Genesis 32. So Gideon now meets two more groups of Jews, two more people that are his own people. And they also show him a degree of disrespect. And yet his response to these towns is radically different than to Ephraim. So he shows up and he says, uh, listen, we've been fighting. They've, they've, they've probably have been marching now for about 80 miles and apparently at a very torrid pace because they're exhausted yet pursuing. So the language is that there's something driving Gideon. Something has driven them here. 
So, much, so effective and so quickly are they moving that they actually catch the Midianites off guard again because they said they're feeling secure. They take a back route where the caravans go to sneak up on the Midianites. So again, Gideon showing brilliant tactical awareness. But when he shows up to these towns, he actually asks for something very reasonable. He says, listen, for, for three reasons, they should have given him supplies. One, they're kinsmen. They're, they're, they're all Israelites. So they should have said, yes, take the bread you need. Second, um, hospitality. The ancient Near East was a place of hospitality. And in your community groups this week, there's a question about that because the problem and thread and the breakdown of hospitality runs parallel with the breakdown and the decay of Israel. So when Jael offers Sisera hospitality and then drives a, state, a peg through his head, and then here, and it keeps happening, you're gonna, it gets worse. Hospitality breaks down as the nation breaks down. So they should have offered hospitality, but they don't. And maybe more importantly, maybe they should have appreciated what Gideon was doing here. He and his men are risking their lives, and many of them dying, to liberate Israel from the Midianite oppression. So he's making a legitimate claim here. Hey, help us out. And they turn him down. These two cities, uh, not cities, let's call them towns because they're not big. But they turn him down and they're shrewd, right? They say, hey, we don't even know if you're going to win this battle yet. So if we give you help and you lose, then the Midianites are going to come crush us. So we'll just remain neutral for now, if you don't mind. So Gideon's response isn't diplomacy. Gideon could maybe have said something like, okay, it's fine, you don't want to trust me and my 300 men, but will you trust the Lord who has given them into our hand already once when there was 135,000, and now when there's only 15, that's nothing. Trust God, though, if you don't trust us. Maybe he could have said something like that, I don't know, but he doesn't. Instead, Gideon says, all right, I'm going to teach you a lesson then. He literally says, I will thresh you. When it says flail you in the ESV, it's a word that is used for threshing wheat. If you don't know how you thresh wheat, you put wheat on a hard floor and you beat it the snot out of it, right? You just hammer it because you're trying to separate the kernel of wheat from, from the husk. And in some cases, in this time as well, they had big, long, heavy boards um, with stones on top, and underneath, on the bottom of the stones, were more rocks, pointy ones. And you would drag that over the top of the, the wheat, and it would just tear the, fle- the, the husk off of the, the, off the kernel. So when Gideon says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do that to you, that's pretty, pretty harsh. Then he goes to Penuel, and the same thing happens. So he says, fine, I'm going to tear down the tower you have here. And when he finally wins the battle and returns, he doesn't just make good on his promise, but he actually kills all the men of Penuel as well, which is he goes beyond his excessive threat. So while these cities should have helped him, he goes well beyond what was required right? And his brutality is clear. So here we have these back-to-back stories of diplomacy and brutality. Why are we put side by side? And why does he respond differently in each? Because they're similar. They're not the same, but they're similar. And these are things, again, you can chew over. I'm going to suggest to you what I think from an educated perspective, having read many people who, who would say this, but we're not really told why he responds differently. So understand this is me looking at the text, but here's what I think is going on. I think he hammers these towns because he can. I think when he approaches Ephraim, he is against a, a larger tribe with more power, and he needs to keep unity in his army. So he shows diplomacy. But when he gets to these puny little towns, what comes out of Gideon is not that his success makes him brutal. He was always brutal to begin with. Just now he has the opportunity to show it. And 
This hidden sin, the way sin sits in us. See, it's one thing to know the sin you're capable of. It's another thing to show how God is so gracious as to give us opportunity to reveal our sin. And that's hard, right? It's a hard lesson to learn. And the example I, I, I think is really poignant is from a, a play, a book that I often quote. Um, it's Amadeus by Peter Schaefer. You've seen the movie probably, right? The, from the 80s. And in it, it's about a guy named Salieri. And Salieri is a composer, and he's the court composer for the Austrian Empire. And he is the jewel in the firmament of the sky, they say, of the Austrian Empire. The best and most notable composer in the world. And he says he became that way because at, when he was young, he promised to God, I will be chaste. I will live a good life for you if you just make me, an, let me become the best composer around. And he becomes this. He's renowned. Until Mozart shows up. And Mozart, as he calls a snotty, infantile, little, smutty little boy, in Mozart, if you don't know the story of Mozart, he's brilliant. At four years old, he's doing things adults don't do. And yet, he's got no morals. Mozart is known for being uh, loose with his money, loose with his women, everything. And Salieri gets furious because he realizes he is not as good as Mozart. And it crushes him, and he ends up cursing God in the play. And here is one of the things, what he says. All I ever wanted was to sing to him, to God. That's his doing, isn't it? He gave me that longing, then made me mute. Why? Tell me that. If he didn't want me to serve him with music, why implant the desire like a lust in my body, then deny me the talent? Go on, tell me, speak for him. And what do you say? See, see that very first line, all I ever wanted was to sing for him. If it was true that all Salieri ever wanted to do was worship God, then the greatness of Mozart should not have made any difference. He could worship. Mozart wasn't preventing him from worshiping. What Mozart reveals is a sin that had always been in Salieri, which is a desire to not to worship God, but to be worshipped. He wanted to be the best in Austria. And so when Gideon, who is a man who is now used to being respected, he's now been winning and he thinks he deserves the respect, is dishonored, he has to be shrewd with Ephraim, but he crushes the one that he can defeat because the sin of pride... That sin has been in him all along, and it just lacked the opportunity to come out. Now, when God does this, it feels harsh, but is it possible that God is testing Gideon here? I'm going to put you in a position, Gideon, because I want to root out the sin that's in you, even the one you don't know is there. So I'm going to put you in a situation where that sin is going to come out, where it would never come out in any other circumstance. And I think I've told the story before to you about myself. Uh, I was doing, I think it was my master's degree. I don't remember, one degree. And I got my first ever B on a paper. And Sarah will be testify this. I got a B plus on this paper, and I was broken. I was, so, I was literally said, maybe I shouldn't be a pastor. Maybe I shouldn't be anything. Maybe I should just clean ditches. I don't know. I was destroyed. Destroyed because I got a B plus. Then the, 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 the prof sends me an email saying, sorry, Carl, wrong mark. You got an A+. Plus. And then I'm like, ha, ha, you know? And in that moment, the stupid Carl I am, I realized, I thought here I am trying to do the best I can for God. No, I wanted the marks. I wanted the praise of the A. And when I didn't get it, my ego, I was nothing without the, without the approval of my professors. Nothing. And I wouldn't have known that unless I got the bad mark. 
Otherwise, that, hit, that sin in me, that desire to glorify myself, would have laid there in embryo, dormant in me, until something drove it out. And thank God that he cares enough to, put, to hammer me and to force me to realize how egotistical I really am. And he does this to Gideon, he does it for us. So, first thing, there's sin hidden. And that's why success that God gives us can be sidetracked. Because we start to think, ah, the success is really me. It's me. I deserve the glory here. And Penuel, Sukkoth, if you don't give it to me, I'll thresh you like wheat if I have to. Now, sin doesn't just hide, it drives us. So here we have in verse 18 brand new information, something we haven't heard anywhere else in all of the Bible or in any part of Gideon. Gideon captures these two kings, um, Zeba Zeba and Zalmunna, and then he asks them a question in verse 18. What happened to those guys you killed at Tabor? Now, that's news to us, because nowhere in the book of Judges is there, certainly in the Gideon story, are the Midianites killing people at Tabor. So a brand new bit of information is there. We find out that these men that Zeba and Zalmunna killed were Gideon's brothers. Now, why are we being told this here? Why does it matter? Why why brand new information at this point in the sermon, or in the story? Um, And... It's even more interesting when you consider how different chapter 7 and chapter 8 are. Here's one example. In chapter 7, the word Yahweh, the covenant name for God, appears nine times. And on five of those occasions, it says Yahweh said. So that means on five times in chapter 7, God speaks directly to Gideon. The moment Gideon crosses over the Jordan, God never speaks to him again. The moment he crosses over the Jordan, the only time Gideon, I think, he uses the word a couple times. Uh, once, it's to threaten people. I swear by Yahweh, I'm going to thresh you. <laughs> and, and the other time is when he turns down the crown, and we're going to get there. So why is it that God is silent the moment J- uh, Gideon crosses the Jordan? Now, again, we're not told. Or we don't know why, but it is silent. Is it possible here that his motivation has changed? Is it possible that God doesn't sanction anything that Gideon does when he crosses over the Jordan? Because Gideon had been called to drive Midian out of Israel, and they've left. And the moment Gideon chases them over the Jordan, God seems to not be there. Why? Is it possible his motivation in chapter 7 is to honor God and his calling? Let me save Israel. That's my job. That's what I've been called to do. But now, his motivation isn't to save Israel, is it? Now that we know his brothers have been killed and that's what drives him to kill them, what is the motivation he has that drives him to run exhausted with his men? Vengeance. His motivation has changed. And this is probably, most scholars will say, this is probably, we don't know, but it it is interesting that God no longer seems to sanction this. God isn't saying, I've delivered them into your hand. It's, It's ended. So I think what is going on here is that, and I'm not alone, one other person, many others, but others who say it is a guy named Tim Keller. He's a pastor of Redeemer in New York. And in his commentary on Judges, he says this, Gideon's ruthless, remarkable pursuit has been motivated less by a desire to complete the deliverance of God's people than by a drive for personal vengeance, for the honor of his own family. And this might be why he asks his young son to kill the kings. Some people will say, well, that was that common practice? Not really. What he is doing is he is saying, Kings, you killed my brother, now my little boy is going to kill you. How's that for humiliation? It's an act of humiliation. He doesn't want to just defeat Midian. He wants, to, he wants to grind them into the ground. He wants to humiliate them. And this success that he is given gives Gideon the opportunity. At that moment, 
throughout his whole story. He has the opportunity, because of the success God has given him, to either show mercy or vengeance. And read it carefully. You're going to realize mercy was never an option. He was never going to offer them mercy. And they know it. To the credit of these Midianites, see how defiant they are? Don't let your boy do it. You kill us yourself, tough guy. <laughs> it's a defiance. But Gideon is driven. The sin of his anger, his pride, and his honor lead him to pursue, execute, and humiliate. And so we find that sin, the hidden sin, is what actually is driving him to do God's will. And God is using it. Maybe not in this story, but God uses it. Trying to root it out, of course. God is trying to show him this, but it drives Gideon. So sin hides, it drives, it consumes. So here we get this last bit about Gideon. He's offered the crown, and we're going to return to this at the end, but uh, Israel offers him the crown because he's done so well and he seems to have saved them. Uh, he turns it down, which for that moment, I'm like, thank one good thing Gideon does. But there's something interesting. Scholars again note he turns down the crown, and yet his life that's described afterwards seems to suggest that he goes on living like a king anyway. Let me explain. So he turns down the crown. That's very good, by the way. Well done, Gideon. The Lord is their king. First thing he does is he says, I'm not going to take it, but give me a gift. Give me a gift for saving you, for rescuing, for delivering you. And the gift ends up being, roughly depending on the weights and measures, is about 42 pounds of gold which is about 1.5 million today. So a lot of money. And some people think it's, if it's a heavier shekel, it could be as much as 80 pounds. That's a lot of gold. So they give him this, this gold. So interesting that he asks for tribute from his people, which, is that what normal people do? Did Deborah do that? Did Othniel? Did Barak? Nobody. But Gideon does. It's okay. But that's okay. He asks for it. Let's keep going. The next thing that happens is... He, we find he collects the royal tokens from Midian. So he kills these kings, and he takes their purple vestments, their robes, he takes their uh, everything, their stuff, their uh, necklaces, he takes the ornaments off their camels, everything. And what you do normally as a king is you take, you take the trophies of your kings, right? And so when somebody comes and says, I'm looking for Midian, you say, I am the king of Midian, here's proof. I've killed them. So he takes the trappings of the royalty of other nations, which, again, you just don't hear any other judge doing. But that's not enough. Let's keep going. He then makes an ephod. An ephod, boy, you should see how many articles are written about what this thing may or may not have looked like. It's mind-boggling. We don't know. But an ephod was, all you need to know is this. It's a religious garment that was used by Israel to help define and determine God's will. You want to know God's will, you seek him out using the ephod and the thumen and the umen, and if you know all this. So, he creates this thing, and then he puts it in Ophrah, his hometown, and it becomes a snare, we're told. So let's first just see the irony that in chapter 6, he breaks the idols in Ophrah, but now in chapter 8, he creates one and puts it back. Okay, so that's right away a problem. But if you've, who here is, a, there's a lot of people here who like the Queen of England and the monarchy of England, right? You pay attention to what's going on. You'll know that the monarch of England is called the head and the defender of the church, Right? This is common in monarchies everywhere, the Christian ones anyway, but anywhere really, is that the cultic setup, the cultic worship practices of any nation are controlled and headed by the king because they're vital. They're two, hand, they're two fists 
of, in, on the same body. And so if you are the head of the worship, this is what David, remember David, in, when I preached through Samuel, the first thing he does is he establishes Jerusalem as his, te- his headquarters, his capital, and he brings the ark in. Because a king controls the worship practices of a nation. So when Gideon now sets up a worship cultic center in his hometown, when it was, read through chapter 18, already set up in Shiloh, he is claiming something odd, isn't he? So he's claiming, again, the trappings of a king, but it goes further. Because then he has 70 sons, which means he has a harem. Listen, you know who doesn't have a harem? Normal people. Normal people. You may have a couple of wives. In Israel, we have evidence of a couple of wives. But 70 and a harem, that is what kings do. Remember David again. So he develops a harem. But let's go even further. He takes his son, who ends up becoming the de facto leader of Israel. You'll see that in the next week. Uh, and he calls him Abimelech. And Abimelech is Hebrew for Abi, my father. Melech, king. He calls his son, my father is the king. So, okay. It doesn't, though, say anywhere in the text that Gideon makes himself king. It says the opposite. He turns it down. And yet you see how he still seems to live like one. And I'll use the example of me again, because I really am the worst sinner in this room. And there are times when the ego of a pastor will say something like, praise God that you're encouraged by the sermons and the teaching, it's wonderful. But deep down, we say things that ask for backhanded compliments. So on the surface, I will say, don't worship me. But then I'll say things like, oh, what do you think of that sermon, is all right? I'm fishing for compliments, see? And the sin is so rooted in the human heart that he can't get rid of it. He says, no, thank you. But everything he does in his life indicates he wants to be king because he doesn't just retire like Deborah and, and judge Israel like under a tree. And let me just judge and serve the nation. He doesn't do that. They seem to serve him. So Gideon doesn't end well, I don't think. And it consumes him because then he makes this, well, we just talked, but he makes this idol. And you'll notice it says, not just him, but all Israel hoard after it there. Because sin is never satisfied. It's a black hole. It'll suck all of you in. Because in the process, you see, imagine, let's go back to me as a pastor. If I try to build the cult of Carl here, let's build this around the Carl's whatever I am, then what will happen is it may grow. It may grow. But I am not only heaping up a mess for myself, but I am driving you away from worshiping God. But that is the sin in me that would have it. If it was up to me, I would have you all worshiping me. This is the sin in the human heart. Luckily, we have Christ, we have redemption, we have the Holy Spirit that keeps us from that. But Gideon will drag everyone in because this is what sin is. Sin is never contented. Psalm, or Proverbs 27.20 Sheol and Abaddon, euphemisms for hell, are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of men. And so, sin will hide, it will drive you, and it will consume you and anything. You'll drag everyone into your problem with you in time. And lastly, and graciously, thankfully, sin is eventually killed. So, sin cannot be satisfied or appeased. It must be killed. There's no option. There's no middle ground. You can't negotiate with sin. You'll lose. It must be killed. And the best thing I could find here, to, to, uh, came to mind immediately, really, was that spot in Hebrews 11 where um, it talks about the hall of faith, all the great men and women of the Old Testament that are in heaven because they had faith. They showed gospel faith even though it was in the Old Covenant. And in talking about Moses in 11, verse 24 to 26, here's what he says. 
By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, see, let's just think practically. What happens is this. Moses is born and he is taken in by the royal family. He could by all means have been taken hold of that right and exercised and lived as a prince if he wanted. And what is, but he sees that as a sin. I'm not going to seek my own comfort because I think that he thinks it would be for the fleeting pleasure of sin. Instead, isn't this remarkable? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He never met the incarnate Christ, did he? Well, we could argue the Christ is the, the angel of the Lord and maybe the, the, the one speaking from the bush is the word of God. Listen, I've heard all, I've read the articles, I know it. But he never met the incarnate Christ as far as we know. He certainly never called him Christ. And yet, what the Hebrews writer is saying is this. Moses could have taken the benefits of the successes that God had given him. He'd put him in a great opportunity, a good spot. But he chooses to lay down that for the sake of living like Christ. So instead of taking the honor he could have had, which was his, he lays it down and lives a life of suffering and shame with Israel so as to be with them and to help them and to save them. Does that sound familiar? Christ has everything. He has all the success. Everything is there. And he lays it down to take on shame and suffering for your sake. Now, if we now turn this example to Gideon, what if? It's, it's only a question of what if, right? What if Gideon had seen the successes that he was given of to win wars, battles, and over and over? What if he had seen it as something to be given away, that I'm doing this for Israel, not for my own glory? What if he could have seen that the fear that he showed, the revenge, the honor that he was fighting or he was trying to grab for himself the honor by killing the enemy that killed his, kid, his brothers. What if he had seen that as a fleeting pleasure of sin that could have been laid down instead? What if he had, done, um, had chosen to absorb the disrespect, the dishonor, the shame, and the pain, and absorb it like Christ absorbs sin? What if he simply chose to humbly lead Israel instead of striving to make himself great? Right? And we don't have the answer to that. But what we do know is Gideon in his success is for us a warning that as God makes us better, Wesley's sermon, as God improves our situation, maybe not financially, but in any way, it comes in to be given out. In, out. Never to be hoarded for yourself for 70 children and wealth and riches. He makes himself very wealthy. And you see how God loves you then in this situation when you look at how the judges are shadow saviors right? They're called, I've told you before, Yeshua's. They're called saviors. And they point like a shadow. And if you're in a room and a shadow comes into the room, what do you look at? Not the shadow. You turn to see the one who bring, who's in the room that casts the shadow. And so when you and I look at these judges, we see a shadow of the savior. But then we look at the savior who comes and we compare the two, Christ is beautiful. And when you see that, this is what happens. You see um, Gideon risked his life to save Israel, but Christ gave it up. Gideon was unappreciated for his work. So was Christ. Um, Gideon chooses to exact punishment and exercise the power he has over his enemy when he can. Christ, who has all the power to exact punishment over us, chooses to absorb the wrong done to him. Gideon robs God of glory by creating the ephod, and Christ, in every movement of his life, every word from his mouth, every impulse of his heart, says, I will obey and die for the glory of my Father. And so Gideon acts like all the judges do, as a reflection, sometimes positive, 
sometimes negative, to show us the glory of the, of the Messiah that would come, the better, perfect judge. So if you're a Christian, I say this, submit yourself to the scalpel of God. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. But give him access to your heart. Give him access. Give him a key to those rooms that you don't even let your, your family see. And we all have them. Because he wants to reveal those sins and to overcome them. He's already overcome them for you. But by the power of his spirit to help you overcome them. And if you're a skeptic, let me say just something a little longer. If you're not a Christian, I don't know if there's any even in the room or listening. But here's something I say, not from a position of pride. As a Christian, you never speak to a non-believer about Christ thinking that you're better than them. Quite the opposite. I was talking to a group of guys this week on a Zoom call, and we were all talking about how, listen, if, I don't, if you don't accept Christ, you're going to die forever, eternity. You may not believe that, but we believe that. And so because I believe that to be true, I will plead with you to accept salvation. I will. And now look at this passage, because the story shows us this, for you skeptics specifically, for those who are struggling with their faith, who are not sure where they stand. When Israel offers Gideon the crown in verse 22, look at what they say. Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hands of Midian. Israel understands something that you and I understand, even if we don't, couldn't articulate it. You will always give the crown to the one you think saves you. And they think Gideon has saved them, even though all through God has said, I will save you, Gideon, and Israel. And the very second last verse in this cha chapter says, the people did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them, he had delivered them, from the hand of all their enemies on every side. They could not see it. If you're a skeptic, even if you're a Christian, be careful. You will always give something the crown that you think will save you. It might be your cleverness as a pastor. It might be your parenting. If your kids turn out perfect, you're going to think you're the best parent. If you have money, you're going to think you're the cleverest with money, you're shrewdest, and that's why God's blessing you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a country preacher with a small church with one person listening to you or a tyrant of a father with a family. You're going to give something the crown. And the only one who deserves that crown, which is the constant cry of judges and the Bible, is the one who can save you. And Gideon may save you from, Gideon, from the Midianites, but you see what it says about God in that verse, 34? He delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. I might be, a doctor can save you from cancer for a short time, but unless somebody can save you from the eternity of death, he does not deserve your worship. Christ can, and this is where I will really end. It's that wonderful old hymn. I don't know if you guys are going to sing it. You are? I, I threw a wrench to my poor wife and said, I'm going to end with a quote of a hymn, so you don't have to sing it, but it could be weird if you don't. Um, so, and it's Crown Him with Many Crowns by Matthew Bridges. This verse, and then I'll pray. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as the matchless king through all eternity. He's the only one who deserves the crown. Give it to him. Let's pray.